Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. So the book I've chosen today is Sweet Francaise by Irene Nemirovsky. And I'm sure many of you will remember the story that in 1941, Irene Nemirovsky sat down to write a book um, that would try and convey the magnitude of what she was living through. She was looking at it from the point of view of domestic French people suddenly caught up in the turmoil of being overrun and occupied and so on. Um, The problem for her was that she was Jewish and like a lot of French Jews, she was rounded up, sent to Auschwitz and died Uh, in 1942. So she never knew that 65 years later, the two sections of her planned novel sequence were rediscovered on tiny, tiny little pieces of paper, tiny handwriting, edited, published, and hailed as a masterpiece. So I'm going to start at the very beginning with chapter one, which is called War. Hot, thought the Parisians. The warm air of spring. It was night, They were at war, and there was an air raid. But dawn was near, and the war far away. The first to hear the hum of the siren were those who couldn't sleep, the ill and bedridden, mothers with sons at the front, women crying for the men they loved. To them it began as a long breath, like air being forced into a deep sigh. It wasn't long before its wailing filled the sky. It came from afar, from beyond the horizon, slowly, almost lazily. Those still asleep, dreamed of waves breaking over pebbles, a March storm whipping up the woods, a herd of cows trampling the ground with their hooves, until finally sleep was shaken off, and they struggled to open their eyes, murmuring, Is it a raid? The women, more anxious, more alert, were already up, although some of them, after closing the windows and shutters, went back to bed. The night before, Monday the 3rd of June, bombs had fallen on Paris for the first time since the beginning of the war. Yet everyone remained calm. Even though the reports were terrible, no one believed them. No more so than if victory had been announced. We don't understand what's happening, people said. They had to dress their children by torchlight. Mothers lifted small, warm, heavy bodies into their arms. Come on, don't be afraid, don't cry. An air raid. All the lights were out, but beneath the clear golden June sky, every house, every street was visible. As for the Seine, the river seemed to absorb even the faintest glimmers of light and reflect them back a hundred times brighter, like some multifaceted mirror. Badly blacked-out windows, glistening rooftops, the metal hinges of doors all shone in the water. There were a few red lights that stayed on longer than the others. No one knew why, and the Seine drew them in, capturing them and bouncing them playfully on its waves. From above it could be seen flowing along, as white as river of milk. It guided the enemy planes, some people thought. Others said that it couldn't be so. In truth, no one really knew anything. I'm staying in bed, sleepy voices murmured. I'm not scared. 
All the same, it just takes one, the more sensible replied. Through the windows that rang along the surface stairs in new apartment blocks, little flashes of light could be seen descending. The people living on the sixth floor were fleeing the upper stories. They held their torches in front of them in spite of the regulations. Do you think I want to fall on my face on the stairs? Are you coming, Emile? Everyone instinctively lowered their voices, as if the enemy's eyes and ears were everywhere. One after another, doors slammed shut. In the poorer neighbourhoods, there was always a crowd in the metro, or the foul-smelling shelters. The wealthy simply went to sit with the concierge, straining to hear the shells bursting and the explosions that meant bombs were falling, their bodies as tense as frightened animals in dark woods as the hunter gets closer. Though the poor were just as afraid as the rich and valued their lives just as much, they were more sheep-like. They needed each other, needed to link arms, to groan or laugh together. Day was breaking. A silvery-blue light slid over the cobblestones, over the parapets along the quayside, over the towers of Notre Dame. Bags of sand were piled halfway up the all-important monuments, encircling Carpo's dancers on the façade of the Opera House, silencing the Marseillaise on the Arc de Triomphe. Still at some distance, great guns were firing. They drew nearer, and every window shuddered in reply. In hot rooms with blacked-out windows, children were born, and their cries made the women forget the sound of sirens and war. To the dying, the barrage of gunfire seemed far away, without any meaning whatsoever, just one more element in that vague, menacing whisper that washes over those on the brink of death. Children slept peacefully, held tight against their mother's sides, their lips making sucking noises, like little lambs. Street sellers' carts lay abandoned, full of fresh flowers. The sun came up, fiery red, in a cloudless sky. A shell was fired, now so close to Paris that from the top of every monument birds rose into the sky. Great blackbirds, rarely seen at other times, stretched out their pink-tinged wings. Beautiful fat pigeons cooed, swallows wheeled, sparrows hopped peacefully in the deserted streets. Along the Seine, each poplar tree held a cluster of little brown birds who sang as loudly as they could. Deep beneath the ground, they heard the sound everyone had been waiting for, a muffled, faraway call, like a three-tone fanfare. The air raid was over. Chapter 2 In the Pericorned household, they listened in shocked silence to the evening news on the radio, but no one passed comment on the latest developments. The Pericorns were a cultivated family. Their traditions, their way of thinking, their middle-class Catholic background, their ties with the church, their eldest son, Philippe Pericorn, was a priest, all these things made them mistrustful of the government of France. On the other hand, Monsieur Pericorn's position as curator of one of the country's national museums bound them to an administration that showered its faithful with honours and financial rewards. A cat held a little piece of bony fish tentatively between its sharp teeth. He was afraid to swallow it, but he couldn't bring himself to spit it out, either. Madame Pericon finally decided that only a male mind could explain with clarity such a strange, serious events. Neither her husband nor her eldest son was at home. Her husband was dining with friends. Her son was not in Paris. Charlotte Pericon, who'd ruled the family's daily life with an iron hand, whether it was managing the household, her children's education, or her husband's career, was not in the habit of seeking anyone's opinion. But this was of a different order. She needed a voice of authority to tell her what to believe. Once pointed in the right direction, there would be no stopping her. Even if given absolute proof, she was mistaken, 
she would reply with a cold, condescending smile, My father said so. My husband is very well informed. And she would make a dismissive little gesture with her gloved hand. She took pride in her husband's position. She herself would have preferred a more domestic lifestyle. But following the example of our dear saviour, each of us has his cross to bear. She had come home between appointments to oversee her children's studies, the baby's bottles and the servant's work, but she didn't have to take off her hat and coat. For as long as the Pericon children could remember, their mother was always ready to go out, armed with hat and white gloves. And since she was thrifty, her mended gloves had the faint smell of stain remover, a reminder of their passage through the dry cleaners. As soon as she had come in this evening, she had gone to stand in front of the radio in the drawing room. Her clothes were black, her hat a divine little creation in fashion that season, decorated with three flowers and topped with a silk pom-pom. Beneath it, her face was pale and anguished, emphasising the marks of age and fatigue. She was forty-seven years old and had five children. You would have thought, to look at her, that God had intended her to be a redhead. Her skin was extremely delicate, lined by the passing years. Freckles were dotted over her strong, majestic nose. The expression in her green eyes was as sharp as a cat's. At the last minute, however, it seemed that Providence had wavered or decided that a shock of red hair would not be appropriate, neither to Madame Pericon's irreproachable morals nor to her social status, so she had been given mousy brown hair, which she was losing by the handful since she'd had her last child. Monsieur Pericon was a man of great discipline. His religious scruples prohibited a number of pleasures, and his concern for his reputation kept him away from the places of ill repute. The youngest Paracon child was only two, and between Father Philippe and the baby there were three other children, not counting the ones Madame Paracon had discreetly referred to as the three accidents. Babies she had carried almost a term before losing them, so that three times their mother had been on the verge of death. The drawing-room where the radio was now playing was enormous and well-proportioned, with four windows overlooking the Boulevard de la Serre. It was furnished in traditional style, with large armchairs and settees upholstered in golden yellow. Next to the balcony, the elder Monsieur Pericon sat in his wheelchair. He was an invalid, whose advancing age meant that he sometimes lapsed back into childhood, and only truly returned to his right mind when discussing his fortune, which was considerable. He was a Pericon de Maltette, heir to the Maltette family of Lyon. But the war with his trials and tribulations no longer affected him. He listened indifferent, steadily nodding his beautiful silvery beard. The children stood in a semicircle behind their mother, the youngest in his nanny's arms. Nanny had three sons of her own at the front. She had brought the little boy downstairs to say goodnight to his family and took advantage of her brief entry into the drawing room to listen anxiously to what they were saying on the radio. The door was slightly ajar, and Madame Pericon could sense the presence of the other servants outside. Madeleine, the maid, was so beside herself with worry that she came right up to the doorway. To Madame Pericon, such a breach of the normal rooms. To Madame Pericon, such a breach of the normal rules seemed a frightening indication of things to come. It was in just this manner that the different social classes all ended up on the top deck during a shipwreck. But working-class people were highly strung. How they do get carried away, Madame Pericon thought reproachfully. She was one of those middle-class women who generally trust the lower classes. They're not so bad if you know how to deal with them, she would say in that same condescending and slightly sad tone she used to talk of a caged animal. She was proud that she kept her servants for a long time. She insisted on looking after them when they were ill. 
When Madeline had had a sore throat, Madame Pericorn herself had prepared her gargle. Since she had no time to administer it during the day, she'd waited until she got back from the theatre in the evening. Madeleine had woken up with a start, and had only expressed her gratitude afterwards, and even then rather coldly in Madame Pericon's opinion. Well, that's the lower classes for you. Never satisfied. And the more you go out of your way to help them, the more ungrateful and moody they are. But Madame Pericon expected no reward, except from God. She turned towards the shadowy figures in the hallway and said with great kindness, You may come and listen to the news if you like. Thank you, madam. The servants murmured respectfully and slipped into the room on tiptoe. They all came in, Madeline, Marie, Auguste the valet, and finally Maria the cook, embarrassed because her hands smelled of fish. But the news was over. Now came the commentaries on the situation. Serious, of course, but not alarming, the speaker assured everyone. He spoke in a voice so full so calm, so effortless, and used such a resonant tone each time he said the words France, homeland, and army, that he instilled hope in the hearts of his listeners. He had a particular way of reading such communiques as The enemy is continuing relentless attacks on our positions, but is encountering the most valiant resistance from our troops. He said the first part of the sentence in a soft, ironic, scornful tone of voice, as if to imply, at least that's what they'd like us to think but in the second part he stressed each syllable, hammering home the adjective valiant and the words our troops with such confidence that people couldn't help thinking, surely there's no reason to worry so much. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. 
In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Madame Pericon saw the questioning, hopeful stares directed towards her. It doesn't seem absolutely awful to me, she said confidently. Not that she believed it. She just felt it was her duty to keep up morale. Maria and Madeleine let out a sigh. You think so, madame? Hubert, the second eldest son, a boy of seventeen with chubby pink cheeks, seemed the only one struck with despair and amazement. He dabbed nervously at his neck with a crumpled-up handkerchief and shouted in a voice that was so piercing it made him hoarse. It isn't possible. It isn't possible that it's come to this. But, Mummy, what has to happen before they call everyone up? Right away. Every man between sixteen and sixty. That's what they should do, don't you think so, Mummy? He ran into the study and came back with a large map which he spread out on the table, frantically measuring the distances. We're finished, I'm telling you. Finished unless... Hope was restored. I see what they're going to do he finally announced, with a big, happy smile that revealed his white teeth. I can see it very well. We'll let them advance, and then we'll be waiting for them there, and there, look, see, mummy, or even... Yes, yes, said his mother. Go and wash your hands now, and push back that bit of hair that keeps falling into your eyes. Just look at you. Fury in his heart, Hubert folded up his map. Only Philippe took him seriously. Only Philippe spoke to him as an equal. How I hate this family, he said to himself and kicked violently at his little brother's toys as he left the drawing-room. Bernard began to cry. That'll teach him about life, Hubert thought. The nanny hurried to take Bernard and Jacqueline out of the room. The baby, Emmanuel, was already asleep over her shoulder. Holding Bernard's hand, she strode through the door, crying for her three sons, whom she imagined already dead, all of them. Misery and misfortune, misery and misfortune, she said quietly over and over again, shaking her grey head. She continued muttering as she started running the bath and warmed the children's pyjamas. Misery and misfortune. To her, those words embodied not only the political situation, but more particularly, her own life. Working on the farm in her youth, her widowhood, her unpleasant daughters-in-law, living in other people's houses since she was sixteen. Auguste the valet shuffled back into the kitchen. On his solemn face was an expression of great contempt, and that was aimed at many things. The energetic Madame Pericorn went to her rooms and used the available fifteen minutes between the children's bath time and dinner to listen to Jacqueline and Bernard recite their school lessons. Bright little voices rose up. The earth is a sphere which sits on absolutely nothing. Only the elder Monsieur Pericorn and Albert the cat remained in the drawing room. It had been a lovely day. The evening light softly illuminated the thick chestnut trees. Albert, a small grey tomcat who belonged to the children, seemed ecstatic. He rolled around on his back on the carpet. He jumped up onto the mantelpiece, nibbled at the edge of a peony in a large midnight blue vase, delicately poured at a snapdragon etched into the bronze corner mount of a console table, then in one leap perched on the old man's wheelchair and meowed in his ear. The elder Monsieur Pericon stretched a hand towards him. His hand was always freezing cold, purple and shaking. The cat was afraid and ran off. Dinner was about to be served. 
Auguste appeared and pushed the invalid into the dining room. They were just sitting down at the table when the mistress of the house stopped suddenly, Jacqueline's spoon of tonic suspended in midair. "'It's your father, children,' she said as the key turned in the lock. "'It was indeed, Monsieur Pericon, a short, stocky man with a gentle and slightly awkward manner. His normally well-fed, relaxed and rosy-cheeked face looked, not frightened or worried, but extraordinarily shocked. He wore the expression found on people who have died in an accident, in a matter of seconds, without having had time to be afraid or suffer. They would be reading a book, or looking out of a car window, thinking about things, or making their way along a train to the restaurant car, when, all of a sudden, there they were in hell. Madame Pericon rose quietly from her chair. Adrien, she called out, her voice anguished. "'It's nothing, nothing,' he muttered hastily, glancing furtively at the children, his father and the servants. Madame Pericon understood. She nodded at the servants to continue serving dinner. She forced herself to swallow her food, but each mouthful seemed as hard and bland as a stone and stuck in her throat. Nevertheless, she repeated the phrases that had become ritual at mealtimes for the past thirty years. "'Don't drink before starting your soup,' she told the children. "'Darling, your knife.' She cut the elderly Monsieur Pericon's fillet of sole into small strips. He was on a complicated diet that allowed him to eat only the lightest food, and Madame Pericon always served him herself, pouring his water, buttering his bread, tying his napkin around his neck, for he always started drooling when he saw food he liked. I don't think poor elderly invalids can bear to be touched by servants, she would say to her friends. "'We must show Grandfather how much we love him, my darlings,' she instructed the children, looking at the old man with terrifying tenderness. In his later years, Monsieur Pericon had endowed various philanthropic projects, one of which was especially dear to his heart, the penitent children of the 16th arrondissement, a venerable institution whose goal was to install morals in delinquent minors. It had always been understood that the elder Monsieur Pericon would leave a certain sum of money to this organisation— but he had a rather irritating way of never revealing exactly how much. If he hadn't enjoyed his meal, or if the children made too much noise, he would suddenly emerge from his stupor and say in a weak but clear voice, "'I'm going to leave them five million. A painful silence would follow. On the other hand, if he'd had a lovely meal and a good sleep in his chair by the window, in the sunshine, he would look up at his daughter-in-law with the pale, distant eyes of a small child or a newborn puppy. Charlotte was very tactful. She never replied, as others might. "'You're absolutely right, father.' Instead, she would say sweetly, "'Good Lord, you have plenty of time to think about that.' The Pericon fortune was considerable, but it would be unjust to accuse them of coveting the elder Monsieur Pericon's inheritance. They didn't care about money, not at all, but money cared about them, so to speak. They were certain things that they deserved, including the Maltet Lyonnais millions. They would never manage to spend it all, but they would save it for their children's children.' As for the penitent children of the 16th arrondissement, they were so involved with this charity that twice a year Madame Pericorne organised classical music concerts for the unfortunate children. She would play the harp and was gratified to notice that, at certain passages, sobbing could be heard in the darkened concert hall. Monsieur Pericorne followed his daughter-in-law's hands attentively. She was so distracted and upset that she forgot his source. His white beard waved about alarmingly. Madame Pericon came back to reality and quickly poured the parsley butter over the ivory flesh of the fish, but it was only after she placed a slice of lemon at the side of his plate that the old man was calm again. Hubert leaned towards his brother and muttered, "'It's not going well, is it?' "'No,' he replied with a gesture and a look. 
Hubert dropped his trembling hands onto his lap. He was lost in thought, vividly imagining scenes of battle and victory. He was a Boy Scout. He and his friends would form a group of volunteers, sharpshooters who would defend their country to the end. In a flash, his mind raced through time and space. He and his friends, a small group bound by honour and loyalty. They would fight. They would fight all night long. They would save their bombed-out burning Paris. What an exciting, wonderful life! His heart leapt. And yet, war was such a savage and horrifying thing. He was intoxicated by his imaginings. He clutched his knife so tightly in his hand that the piece of roast beef he was cutting fell onto the floor. "'Clumsy oaf,' whispered Bernard. He and Jacqueline were eight and nine years old, respectively, and were both thin, blonde, and stuck up. The two of them were sent to bed after dessert, and the elder Monsieur Paricon fell asleep at his usual place by the open window. The tender June day persisted, refusing to die. Each pulse of light was fainter and more exquisite than the last, as if bidding farewell to the earth, full of love and regret. The cat sat on the window ledge and looked nostalgically towards an horizon that was the colour of green crystal. Monsieur Pericon paced up and down the room. In a few days, maybe even tomorrow, the Germans will be on our doorstep. I've heard the High Command has decided to fight outside Paris. In Paris, beyond Paris. No one knows it yet, thank goodness, because after tomorrow, there will be a stampede on the roads and at train stations. You must leave your mother's house in Burgundy as early as possible tomorrow morning, Charlotte. As for me, Monsieur Pericon said rather proudly, I shall share the fate of the treasures entrusted to my care. But everything in the museum had been moved out in September, said Hubert. Yes, but the temporary hiding place they chose in Brittany isn't suitable. It turns out it's as damp as a cellar. I just don't understand it. A committee was organised to safeguard national treasures. It had three sections and seven subsections, each of which was supposed to appoint a panel of experts responsible for hiding works of art during the war. Yet just last month, an attendant in the Provisional Museum points out that suspicious stains are appearing on the canvases. Yes, a wonderful portrait of Mignard, with his hands rotting away from a kind of green leprosy. They quickly sent the valuable packing cases back to Paris, and now I'm waiting for an order to rush them off to somewhere even further away. But what about us? How will we travel? By ourselves? You'll leave tomorrow morning, calmly with the children and the two cars, and any furniture and luggage you can carry, of course. We can't pretend that, by the end of the week, Paris might not be destroyed, burned down, and thoroughly pillaged. You are amazing, exclaimed Charlotte. You talk about it so calmly. Monsieur Pericon turned to his wife, his face gradually returning to his normal pinkish colour, a matte pink, the colour of pigs who have been recently slaughtered. That's because I can't really believe it, he explained quietly. Here I am, speaking to you, listening to you. We've decided to flee, to leave our home, yet I cannot believe that it is all real. Do you understand? Now go and get everything ready, Charlotte. Everything must be ready by tomorrow morning. You could be at your mother's in time for dinner. Join you as soon as I can. Madame Pericon's face wore the same resigned, bitter look as when the children were ill, and she was forced to put on an apron and nurse them. They all usually managed to be ill at the same time, though with different maladies. When this happened, Madame Pericon would come out of the children's rooms with a thermometer in her hand, as if she were brandishing the crown of martyrdom, and everything in her bearing seemed to cry out, You will reward your servants on judgment day, kind Jesus. What about Philippe? was all she asked. Philippe cannot leave Paris. Madame Perricon left the room, head held high. She refused to bow beneath the burden. She would see to it that the entire household was ready to leave in the morning. The elderly invalid, four children, the servants, the cat, plus the silver, the most valuable pieces of china, the fur coats, food and medicine in case of emergencies. 
She shuddered. In the sitting room, Hubert was pleading with his father. Please let me stay. I can stay here with Philippe and... Don't make fun of me. Can't you see that if I went and got my friends, we could form a company of volunteers? We're young, strong, ready for anything. We could... Monsieur Perricon looked at him. My poor boy, was all he said. It's all over. We've lost the war, stammered Hubert. Is, is, it, is it true? And suddenly, to his horror, he felt himself burst into tears. He cried like a baby, like Bernard would have cried, his large mouth twisted, tears streaming down his face. Night was falling, soft and peaceful. A swallow flew by, lightly brushing against the balcony in the dark night air. The cat let out a frustrated little cry of desire.